0: This is a Radio 1 91FM podcast.
1: It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands
0: with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time.
1: It's, it's a Thursday morning here in beautiful I Actually, I don't know what the weather's like right now because it's the future tomorrow. And tomorrow is when this is playing out. Tomorrow being Thursday. Uh, but we're in the past. We're in the history now. <laughs> We sure are Jamie. I am joined by Dr. Violetta Hilbert um for history time. Um Morena.
0: Morena Jamie, lovely to be here.
1: It's so good to have you here. Mm-hmm. Um you got a new job. Can we say that?
0: Well, yeah, it's about ten minutes old, but yeah, do we do have a new job.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's Maybe right.
0: Sneaking off to Auckland next year.
1: Yeah, you're off to the to the big smoke, the the sweaty north mm. where it's hot all the time. The
0: thriving metropolis.
1: Yeah, yeah. I um, hope you don't drive. <laughs> I'm looking forward to making
0: my way back here as swiftly as
1: possible. <laughs> and in the
0: meantime, keeping touch via Zoom.
1: That's right. Right, last week we talked about Maori migration to Aotearoa, Maori migration and settlement mm-hmm. in Aotearoa. This week we're going to talk a little bit about um, the rest of the world beginning to come uh, and settle. Uh, and, and I guess we, we start off with Europeans and, and to a little lesser extent, I guess, Americans. Yes. Um, Abel Tasman was the first non-Māori to discover New Zealand, uh, but it wasn't until Cook's voyages in the 1770s, 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. uh, to the Southern Ocean and the establishment of colonies in Australia that Europeans started to come here uh, and settle. And first it was with those whalers and settlers from Europe and the Americas and um, missionaries. Yes,
0: yes. So there was actually um, quite an interesting mix of folk here prior to 1840. Um, And interestingly, it didn't really appeal to a whole lot of others, Yeah. although it was part of the New World, as they called it, um, that it it was considered a rather rough place, rather far removed, Mm. and especially compared to um, other areas like... Canada, for example, um, very much more sparsely settled, i.e. not at all. So um, the everyday Britoner didn't necessarily aspire to come to New Zealand. It was very much those adventurers and those folks kind of seeking their fortunes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And those... Um, or
0: seeking souls, as you mentioned.
1: Yes, yes, and seeking souls as well. Or perhaps those escaping mm-hmm. um, from persecution in their um, new homeland of Australia.
0: Quite right, yes. And so that was another kind of strike against New Zealand's name as an early migration destination, the fact that it's proximity to Australia and also, of course, those really uh, distasteful rumours about uh, uh, the local population, shall we say, Um, Mm. both the Europeans who had settled there and, of course, um, the indigenous folk. um, Mm It was generally kind of... um, just just not on the map for folk
1: yeah. at that time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I guess the, the initial settlements would have been kind of temporary ones. We've talked about in the past um, in a marriage series when we had mm-hmm. sailors, uh, sealers and whalers having temporary marriages with Maori women in Aotearoa. They would come, they would do their work, they would stay and then they would leave.
0: Yes, Yes. Often they turned into kind of, I mean, there were temporary elements and some some permanent ones. It just depended on the relationship you looked at. Some of them um, were absolutely enduring and would resemble marriage's Probably more than a lot of marriages we see today.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> yes,
0: um, but yeah, in general, it was um, a really mobile and kind of um, uncertain life out mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. But people made connections where they could.
1: Where did true, when, did, when did true settlements begin, and what parts of the nation were kind of settled first by Europeans?
0: Um, by Europeans, Cororarica definitely stands out. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not have a very good reputation the house, back whole
1: the the of the South Seas.
0: Yes, hellhole of the Pacific. All yeah. kinds of, you know, and that—that that was really the locus of all those rumors about um, vice and violence mm. and. Um, just the kind, that, that really um, frontier element of New Zealand. So yeah.
1: It's like, kind of like one of those pirate towns in the Caribbean.
0: Oh, very much so. Tortuga, I think the name was. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tortuga, um, yeah. very much. sounds like the kind of place I'd like to go.
0: Sounds like a good, fun place, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the missionaries certainly didn't think so, and a lot of respectable British folks certainly would have agreed that um, it was not the kind of European presence uh, mm-hmm. that was wanted mm-hmm. in foreign lands. So there yeah. were efforts to kind of, you know, bring things up uh, under control. And yeah. that's where settlement really started.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I guess that true settlement kind of began post-treaty or around the 1840
0: mark? Yes, um, quite, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, quite interesting that the population exploded um, after 1840 and, of course, um, a great deal to do with the treaty. But the main folks responsible for that, um, aside from uh, the churches, was the New Zealand Company, which we've also discussed.
1: Yes, we have discussed that. (laughs) Uh, And and I guess there were... I don't know if they belong within the New Zealand Company, but you had um, those that were coming to Christchurch and, and Dunedin. Yes. You had the the, the Free Scots that were coming um, with the Otago Association. Mm-hmm. you had yeah, the they Canterbury were quite, Association. Quite
0: distinct from New Zealand Company. So the New Zealand Company were more of a private interest. They were looking to. And they were entrepreneurs. They were looking to create a great settlement, make a mark in the history books and kind of create a successful settling enterprise. But um, the Canterbury settlement um, associated with the Anglican Church mm-hmm. and the Otago Association, of course, with the Free Church, um, they were—they had some religious aims. They wanted to kind of cut through... Um, a lot of the sectarian conflict that could be found in Britain, you know, being Anglican or being Presbyterian, being Catholic. It was a very political um, status to be, just to have a religious adherence in the yep. old world. And so that was one of the things, aside from class conflict, that yep. folks were looking to escape by coming here.
1: Yeah. Yep. yeah, Getting a
0: foothold in a new land.
1: Okay, so a lot of it was down to do with class as well. So you had probably those of the lower class seeking passage to Aotearoa uh, and it kind of being cheap.
0: Oh, no, it wasn't. Um, there were subsidised and assisted passages, which was very handy. It was really the way that um, a majority of working class folks or common folk managed to get over to Aotearoa yeah. um, because it was kind of a, a state-sponsored settlement.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but they, they were usually people of very limited means. Um, there were some who were looking to get ahead in life and who mm-hmm. already had mm-hmm. a degree of security. Yeah. But um, the people who were recruited, by and large, and of course it made sense from a settlement perspective, um, yeah. you wanted tradespeople, laborers, yeah. folks with skills, mm-hmm. farming, domestic labor, what have you. Um, And so it was quite a broad cross-section that they aspired to bring over to New Zealand, but by and large it was... People of, of humble means.
1: Mm. Yeah. And there would have been some with a little bit of status, but when they came to Aotearoa, they gained a lot of status, right?
0: Oh, they sure did. And even the folks, um, you know, the folks from uh, the working classes were able to prosper quite quickly. Yeah. Especially yep. after gold was discovered, by golly. Like yes. You can imagine, I mean, coming from um, the, in a, a kind of continent which has just witnessed um the potato famine, for example, yeah, or yeah. the enclosures of land. Um, industrialization so many craftspeople and laborers were just completely left out of work um forced into city slums and were just really unhappy with where they were at Mm -hmm. facing those kinds of futures you could definitely um take a
1: chance in the new world and with gold it's an interesting thing it seems to be when uh, one gold rush runs dry another one on another in another nation begins
0: Yes, I mean, I I can't really say much about the timing, um, (laughs) but it was very fortuitous. There were um, gold rushes in North America and from there in Australia, yep. and New Zealand followed in hot on the tail, almost simultaneously with Australia, but outliving it. And so people from North America who'd been seeking their fortunes there actually hopped from Australia to New Zealand, Mm -hmm. and a lot of Australians who'd been doing much the same um, came to New Zealand as well. That was after the 1840s, well after it, um, about the 1860s and beyond. Mm, yes. So um, that was kind of a, a disruption that we talked about um, when we were discussing Ed, uh, Edward Wakefield and the New Zealand Company. Yeah. Um, the fact that there was a very organised, systematic colonisation of New Zealand by both religious associations and private interests. Uh, that was kind of superseded or disrupted by this big rush in. And one of um, the factors that brought these others in was gold. The other was warfare.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: And um, the, the warfare element wasn't so disruptive because a lot of the soldier settlers were drawn from Britain and were recruited. That's specifically. right. The, the, the Waikato settlement
1: was yep. that one there. The, the British and the Irish, I guess, as well, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, much the same, these, these uh, men were promised you know, a better life, um, plot a plot of land after yep. they had fought for the empire. And they were very happy to accept that deal.
1: Yeah, very much so. And so, of course, here on Otago, we had the gold rush, Gabriel Mm Reid, who was an Irishman uh, who was in Ballarat, I believe, Mm. in in, uh, Victoria, and the gold rush there, came over, went for a walk around Lawrence, found a nugget of gold. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then from that, you had an influx of miners, like we said, from from the Victorian gold fields uh, and from the States as well. Uh, And they weren't just European.
0: Mm. No, no, they were not. No. Um, we had a lot of uh, folk join us from China. Yes, we did. And uh, a number from India as well. Yeah. Those were the two um, most significant non-European migration populations to join in at this time in the late 19th century. There was quite an interesting um, kind of quandary that New Zealanders and um, the empire faced in accepting these migrants. Um, Of course, they wanted to build a mostly European Christian nation. mm mm-hmm. Um, they were seeking to escape a lot of the class and religious divisions that had afflicted them in Britain, and they didn't want to introduce more by way of, uh, say, uh, adherents of the Hindu faith, like my family happened to be, yeah. um, or Chinese folk. And so um, there, there was an interesting kind of issue there, um, being that although both populations were non-white, um, one was a member of the empire.
1: Yes, that's right, that's right. So um, you know, not, not that the Indian population got it easy the whole way through, but because they were a part of the empire, empire, they had it a bit easier than the Chinese, who uh, were persecuted on horrendous levels. Oh, yes. Um, you know, to the point um, where there were issues with sending bodies back, of the miners that died, there, there, um, If there were poll taxes, mm-hmm. which were a huge amount of money. You're looking at, um, you know, £10 back then was $2,000. And that ex- and that became from t- went from £10 to £100. That's $20,000 just mm-hmm. to get into the country to start mining the gold.
0: Yes. Truly, and so beyond that point, the only folks who could get in were, um, you know, a minority of very wealthy, and of course, that was completely the intention was to stem the flow. And there was, yeah. um, it was by and large a public kind of pushback against migration, which generated these laws. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a sense that, um, you know, Chinese miners were um, very efficient in their work. They yes. were often, um, yeah, you know, they were given to working over claims that had already been worked by Europeans in a more exacting way. Um, there were Uh, suspicions around that and also of course uh, just the the linguistic barrier, the cultural barrier and the fact that um, these differences were emerging in a frontier context Mm -hmm. where um, difference was, uh, I suppose, a lot harder to tolerate.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So when the gold starts to dry up Mm -hmm. um, more and more Pakeha Uh, Europeans start looking at the Chinese even worse so uh, because they were um, doing a far more efficient job Mm. at retrieving gold. Uh, And I guess that sometimes when you're reworking a claim, the, the original claimant, when he sees more golds coming out, he's like, well, actually... I might want that back. So things increased. (laughs) Things increased. Uh, The poll tax, like I said, went up as well. But there was at one point, uh, if you wanted to come, you could only have a certain amount of Chinese on your ship per the tonnage that you brought in cargo.
0: Yes, they were um, really, really uh, exacting restrictions just introduced upon each other for this very (laughs) purpose.
1: One Chinaman per 200 ton of cargo.
0: It sounds uh, all quite cynical when read out on paper, but that's certainly how it was back in the day, um, that there was uh, very exacting limitations. And so we see kind of the the priority. We had one uh, Immigration Restriction Act passed in the 1880s, which applied to quote-unquote aliens, uh, Mm -hmm. which referred to Chinese folk and any others of non-European descent, excluding members of empire. So um, Indian migrants actually only came under restrictions in 1899, but that's still not quite so far away from, yes. you know, I mean, far yeah. removed. There was a delay, possibly for appearance's sake, um, but uh, in the end, yeah, and there, there were, of course, um, all of those moral panic elements present as well in mm-hmm. society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that kind of uh, fed into a general distrust of non-white populations. Yep. And, you know, given the difficulties they faced integrating or being part of this settler society that was growing, you could very well see why they would want to maintain their distance.
1: Oh, without doubt, without that. And they certainly did that. Um, all, uh, but, but as we've seen in Dunedin, um, 30 years later, the, the, the um, not even, even at the time, they were the market gardeners as mm-hmm. well. Um, they were the wholesalers. You know, uh, and they became quite strong, prominent families within the Dunedin community.
0: Most certainly, yes. Um, It's uh, always just a a testament of uh, human strength the way migrants manage to kind of make Mm. their way, especially um, when faced with the challenges that uh, a lot of populations here have done. I suppose another thing worth mentioning is like from the European perspective, uh, I suppose the folks who came from the gold fields together with um, their Chinese and in, in, uh, Indian counterparts, they would have been well aware of the challenges that they were facing yep. as migrants to a relatively undeveloped frontier society. But we can't necessarily say the same for the folks who came over on the organised provincial migrations mm-hmm. as assisted immigrants who were directly courted by immigration agents from either the um, the Otago Association, Canterbury Association, but... Um, most strongly the New Zealand company, they were extremely hard on their press and they sold New Zealand as a land of milk and honey, Yes, basically. that's right. Yeah. Um, the phrase friendly natives, quote unquote, was also thrown around quite a lot. They really mm-hmm. tried to push back against the anxieties that Britain has had about migrating to New Zealand. Um, and so uh, a lot of it was to do with the, the fertility of the land, its abundance, um, the cordial race relations that were being built up under the treaty, which of course was um more of a, a fantasy than reality. Yes, of course. The land wars were yet to happen. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so folks arrived here expecting quite a lot more than they got. Um, settlers uh, disembarked from their ships and very quickly ran out of building materials, <laughs> out of food. Um, it was very, very messy indeed. So um, a lot of uh, local Maori communities actually assisted these settlements yes. immensely.
1: Very much Um, so. In
0: getting a foothold and surviving, as did our missionaries with the contacts they'd made um, with folks that were already here. Um, Those sealing and whaling communities really were drawn upon as well. Um, It was not a tidy exercise by any means, this mass migration. Yeah. Um, But you can probably imagine, I suppose, that these folks who were expecting the new world didn't quite find it. (laughs) <laughs> were perhaps more anxious to preserve it um, and more wary of foreigners as a result. And there was certainly a great deal of weariness. Um, I do not hesitate to say that early New Zealand was extremely xenophobic.
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, it's still, uh, at that time, up until 1900, well, and even beyond that, and we'll get into that next week, it's mm-hmm. still a very strange um, modge podge. Uh, well, well, and you've got different um, peoples distrusting different peoples oh,
0: yeah, yeah. all yeah. the shop. That's actually, well, the grand narrative certainly looks that way. But again, when we look locally and look a little closely, we can find um, some kind of encouraging exceptions to the norm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: these folks, different as they were, still did manage to get along to some degree. Um, there were intermarriages, as contentious as they were, and there were also you know, business partnerships,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there were
0: neighbourhoods, and they weren't um, entirely distinct, although they were very different. So connections were still forged, and hence Aotearoa, as we know it today, came to be.
1: Indeed, indeed. And we will look at more uh, migration into Aotearoa next week, uh, beginning with, I guess, the early 1900s and the outcome from World War I.
0: Oh yes, lots of change to be seen there.
1: Indeed. All right, thank you so much, Kiara Jamie. Thanks for listening to Radio One ninety one
0: FM podcast. All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.